listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk, and today it is the 4th of January, and I'm here in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom by four distinguished guests to talk about what final victory means to Kim Jong-un and North Korea's leadership. Before we get started, three brief messages to all of you listeners. Please leave a review of this podcast wherever you got it so that more people can find it. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. And third, check out nknews.org slash shop for our North Korea leadership chart, art posters, and more. As always, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, you can email me at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, to introduce my four guests today properly, and we have Joshua Stanton, who is on Twitter at FreeKorea underbar US. Benjamin R. Young, who's Assistant Professor of Homeland Security, and he sometimes writes also contributions for NK News. You can find him online at Dubstep in DPRK. We have former member of the European Parliament, Mr. Glenn Ford of Track 2, that's the number two, Asia, uh, who has been on our podcast before. And first timer on this podcast, Dr. Jean Doe, who is historian of North Korea and research professor in the Institute of Humanities for Unification at Konguk University. So welcome on the show, Joshua, Ben, Glenn, and Jean. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Okay, the idea for this discussion, this debate about final victory came back in early September, 2021, when Ben Young wrote a piece for NK News titled, Understanding North Korea's Final Victory and Why It Matters. A couple of weeks later, that was responded to in writing, uh, also at NK News, by Aidan Foster Carter in a piece titled Sleep Easy Seoul, The North Koreans Aren't Taking Over the Peninsula. Now, it's certainly a question that I've asked time and again to many of the NK News podcast guests over the years in various forms. What does Kim Jong-un and the leadership of North Korea ultimately want? What is their concept of final victory? There's no doubt that the phrase Chehue Sungni appears throughout North Korean media. It's also a slogan that you can see on the streets, on paintings and signs, exhorting the people to move forward to final victory, or Chehue Sungni at all. But what does it really mean? Is it simply being left alone and existing peacefully alongside South Korea with some level of interaction and trade? Or is it to communize South Korea and absorb it into the DPRK state? under the leadership of a member of the Kim family? Is it an empty phrase, devoid of direct programmatic specificity, or is it something that oscillates in between? So we're gonna hear, we're gonna discuss this here today, and I've asked each of you to start us off with a short statement of about four minutes or so in length. And Ben, since you wrote the article that started this discussion, let me turn to you first to give us your picture of what final victory means. Yeah, so, Quite honestly, the, probably the best way to really uh, understand what I think of final victory is by reading the original NK news piece, because what I'm, about to, what I'm about to say is probably the less articulate version of that, but I'll do my best. So final victory is something that has been part of North Korea's political and cultural output since 1950, since the beginning of the Korean War. It is something that Kim Il-sung uh, repeatedly stated in his speeches and in his works. And it was something that Kim Jong-il and now Kim Jong-un has stated as well. And so Kim, final victory really is comprised of two stages. The first is the removal of foreign military presence from the Korean peninsula. Uh, and 
foreign military presence, obviously that mostly means the United States. And the second part of the final victory for the North Koreans is then a confederation and a slow withering away of the Republic of Korea. And to the casual observer of inter-Korean studies and North Korean studies, the idea of a prosperous and economically powerful South Korea vanishing away and being defeated by North Korea seems absurd. Uh, but it does, it may seem absurd to us, but it's nice, it's something that has been part of North Korea's lexicon and revolutionary mindset since 1950. And just because it's absurd doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that they won't try for, because every country, every nation, every insurgency needs some needs some sort of forward oriented vision, some sort of radical vision of the future. I mean, and 20 years ago, if you had looked at what was going on in Afghanistan and you thought, okay, maybe the, would the Taliban ever actually rule this country again? That seemed like something that would be a pipe dream. But now, obviously, Taliban is in control of Kabul and Afghanistan. And it shows just the longer term strategic thinking of some of these insurgencies and illiberal regimes. But that's not to say that North Korea and the Taliban are the same. They're obviously very different, different uh, politically, uh, symbolically, religiously, just about different in every single way. But what they do share is a revolutionary mindset. They have this shared vision that their society needs to be changed according to their own worldview. And if you actually look at the recent cultural milieu in South Korea, and I'm sure Josh will talk more about this lately, but it's become more and more sympathetic towards the nationalist left, towards the kind of the more North Korea sympathizer regime. I just read yesterday that there was a, uh, as part of the unification ministry in South Korea, that they're going to have uh, kind of a fund to address fake news on North Korea. The unification ministry of South Korea allotted 200 million Korean won to uh, kind of opposing fake news in North Korea. Who knows what actually fake news means, but the cultural milieu in South Korea is very much oriented towards this reunification first. Let's think about what that actually means later. Um, I don't want to drone on too long. I can keep going on and on, but uh, the cultural output of South Korea that is something that I think it needs to be looked at more, uh, whether that is the recent movie Escape from Mogadishu, where North and South Korean diplomats have this kind of uh, ideological kinship and the Somalis in the background are just kind of mere backdrops. Or there's an, another recent movie in South Korea called Ilang the Wolf Brigade, which where the actual the bad guys in that movie are an anti-reunification kind of group. And so all of this is to set up that we need to start thinking about inter-Korean affairs, not as just one is very much opposed to communism and North Korean ideology, and the other one is very much in favor of communism and, and this kind of revolutionary ideology. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I'll, I'll leave it at there. Okay. All right. That's a, a good beginning. I want to turn now to uh, Professor Jean Doe of Kongok University. Can you give us your uh, first impressions, please? Well, I guess the 
the reference to unification uh, in North Korean parlance, official parlance and discourse is not new. And all of the three top North Korean leaders uh, have uh, stressed unification as uh, a top national priority. But to understand how much of a priority unification is, or the final victory and unification is, the the words of Kim Jong-un and his speeches and uh, the concepts that he has used uh, to rationalize and to um, emphasize uh, unification has to be understood in connection to other factors, such as North Korean domestic politics and the state of inter-Korean relations and, um, and international relations, including alliance politics. So I would say that all North Korean top leaders have historically laid an emphasis on unification, but in varying degrees and using slogans and justifications that are tailored to the prevailing domestic regional and international circumstances. So in the case of Kim Jong-un, to understand his references to final victory and what is meant by unification has to be contextualized or has to be understood in connection to uh, the more fundamental principle of our state first, which Kim Jong-un and uh, other officials have uh, focused on since uh, about 2017 and more um, approximately about uh, 2019. And if we look at how, how novel uh, this our state first uh, notion is uh, in comparison to um, the principles and ideology of uh, his, uh, Kim Jong-un's predecessors, in the past, uh, unification was uh, stressed with much um, more uh, emphasis and, uh, and vigor in the parlance of Kim Jong-un's predecessors. But uh, what Kim Jong-un is now doing it, with uh, his unification policy and with the uh, repeated references and emphasis being uh, laid on our state first is it signals um, a priority, uh, the main priority being laid on uh, the development and consolidation of North Korean socialism in the northern half of the Korean peninsula rather uh, than um, communizing the entire Korean peninsula, which is something that really rests on uh, the idea that North Korean development, economic development, and its political system might appeal to masses of um, in, in South Korea. And this used to be the expectation or the premises of the unification policies of Kim Jong-un's predecessors, but this kind of notion that they might still appeal to the majority of the South Korean masses is uh, not something that can be supported any longer in the in the present context of where North Korea is economically, uh, particularly um, since the crisis period of the mid 1990s. So interestingly, I would say that our first, uh, our state first slogan of the Kim Jong Un region is very reminiscent of uh, Park Jong Hee's. What Park Jong Hee used to do in the 1960s and 70s with his slogan or policy of economy first, unification later strategy. Strategy of Park Back in the day, in the 1960s, uh, what Park jong did with his uh, economy first, unification later strategy, what this meant for the unification, unification context was that South Korea was effectively accepting by pursuing a self-sustaining um, economy to, in order to try to attain a self-sustaining economy, it was uh, tacitly accepting 
uh, inter-Korean division and abandoned any real prospect of unification. I would say that I would I would not say at this point that Kim Jong Un is not interested in unification or that um, that unification is not an important priority of the North Korean regime, but it does have more of a, it has laid more of a priority on the consolidation of socialism in North Korea and the development of socialism in North Korea. And I think uh, it becomes very clear where the priority is in all the development of socialism. If we revisit the speech back in 2012 that was entitled, um, Let Us March Toward Dynamically, uh, let us march toward dynamically uh, toward final victory, holding higher the banner of uh, Sungun, which was uh, issued by Kim Jong Un back in 2012 on the centennial of uh, Kim Il Sung's birthday. And the main emphasis uh, and the essence of this speech was not unification, but uh, again, repeated references being made to the consolidation of the and powerful nation. So I would say that as as did uh, Park Jong-hee's policy of unific- uh, economy first, unification later, this strategy of Kim Jong-un now with final victory uh, being um, emphasized in the context of our stage first, he's trying to pursue the consolidation of socialism in the northern half of the Korean peninsula and accepting as a um, corollary the existence of, or the coexistence of uh, two Koreas on the Korean Peninsula, which was also the offshoot of Park Jong-hee's um, economy first unification later strategy. Okay, and let me ask now uh, Joshua to come in and uh, give us uh, your uh, opening statement, please. North Korea says it wants a democratic federated Republic of Korea, which would be a confederation in which Pyongyang and Seoul jointly rule Korea. South Korea says it wants a confederation uh, and unification by 2045. A series of joint statements, starting with Park Chung-hee way back in 1972, have laid out a converging, sort of two converging models of how two Koreas can become one. So now you have to ask yourself, how can two of the world's least compatible political systems ever do that? One answer is the sunshine policy, which is that North Korea would change, reform, and open up. And I'm happy to have that debate another time, but I think it speaks for itself that this did not happen, is not happening. The other possibility is what I call South North Korea, that there is not a plan for an occupation of of South Korea on the part of That hasn't been North Korea's plan since Kim Il-sung spoke to the third Congress of the Korean Workers' Party in 1956 and first laid out the division uh, for essentially how this confederation would work and be achieved. North Korea has an intention to dominate South Korea through a one country, two systems model based on this confederation. It intends to achieve that through a combination of nuclear hegemony, a war of skirmishes, such as the Chonan and Yonpyong incidents in 2010, that force a series of pragmatic compromises leading to democratic decay in South Korea, and something somewhat resembling Hong Kong in some aspects, but not in others. Uh, I laid all of this out starting about five years ago in a couple of blog posts, and it has been very depressing to watch over the last five years, all of my worst predictions come true. 
And I put those up there this morning on my Twitter feed for anyone to review and to compare to the historical record. We now have a Ministry of North Korea Truth in South Korea. It will not be enforced by a North Korean occupation force, but by South Korean courts, by South Korean bureaucrats. Uh, the Ministry of Truth will be led by the same people who gave us the Chonan uh, conspiracy theories and the Mad Cow conspiracy theories. How truth uh, and fake news is to be defined is left up to a subjective set of guidelines that we have yet to define. When I laid out my predictions, I said the first thing that would have to be necessary for this to work be essentially the suppression of free speech, thought control. And unfortunately, what we have seen in South Korea and what the press has really missed, it has been a pattern of intimidation of journalists, of uh, sweeping press censorship laws, of uh, criminal defamation prosecutions that have sent people to jail for nonviolent political speech, uh, the so-called leaflet law that goes far beyond leaflets in its sweep. And this is, in fact, now uh, coming down to controlling what journalists can write and say about North Korea in a way that is simply incompatible with free society. In Hong Kong, where the democratic culture was strong, the national security law that was proposed a few years ago brought crowds into the streets. But in, North, uh, in South Korea, where the democratic culture is regrettably not strong, uh, the South Korean government can impose this Orwellian fake news law right in the middle of a presidential election campaign, and hardly anyone bats an eyelash. Some have said North Korea could never occupy South Korea, and of course that's absurd. So this is not what I'm in any way proposing. Some say North Korea could never overcome U.S. forces Korea. I think Benjamin dealt with that argument in some regards. But poorer states and poorer movements have overcome richer states uh, for centuries now. We've seen that with the Taliban. We've seen that with Zanla and Rhodesia. We've seen that with Athens and Sparta, countries or governments that have much to lose, both politically and economically, do tend to respond to threats, to intimidation, and to make compromises that seem small and pragmatic at the time and in isolation. Now we have a situation in which Kim Yo-jung can stand on her side of the DMZ and demand the censorship of leaflets going across the DMZ that are completely nonviolent, that are protected by Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and have South Korean parliamentarians running in to introduce legislation to criminalize that. We have a South Korean government that is democratically ambivalent, despite claiming roots in South Korea's democracy movement. We have people such as Im Jong-suk, and Lee and Young and uh, parliamentarian Im Soo Kyung, who have a long history of pro North Korea sentiment and activism that they have not convincingly renounced. And for those of us in the United States who rejected Donald Trump, were terrified of his democratic decay, uh, it was in fact his comfort with some of the extremist and racist views of his support that sounded the alarm for us 
Um, the same should be true of those in South Korea who have not convincingly renounced the supremacist ideologies and the national liberation ideology, as it's called. These are things that we need to take seriously. Okay, Joshua, thank you. And Glenn Ford now, if you can give us your opening statement, please. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, let me say that uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Pyongyang is absolutely not interested in early unification. In fact, it's against it. Uh, it sees any prospect of early unification of being nothing less than assimilation. They are very well aware that the South Korean economy is 40, 50 times stronger than the North Korean economy. And any prospect of that being any kind of economic equality is, is from their point of view, completely unviable. Uh, what they want is, uh, as they say, from their perspective, they want the Americans and the South Koreans to get off their backs. They take the view that the North Korean uh, people are just as capable of growing their economy as the other Asian tigers. And if the hostile policy was to end, they would have the opportunity over a decade, a generation, maybe two generations to actually grow their economy at rates of 10, 15 percent a year to a point at which they are then at least in the same league as South Korea. At that point, things may change. At that point, you're then in a position where, if you want, the, 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 there is the prospect of some kind of unification, which is not, which is not assimilation. The issue really is that uh, the United States, Seoul and Japan, to a lesser extent, are running the same playbook uh, with North Korea they actually ran with the Soviet empire. They are, try they are driving an arms race that's going to create a situation where the civil economy in the North, as we know very well, is living a lie. And that we will see a situation where that economy is finally driven to, driven to the point of collapse. They're being outspent by Seoul in terms of military, uh, military expenditure by a factor of five to six. They're being outspent by the US, Japan and Seoul by a factor of 50. From their point of view, they have had no alternative but to, if you want, resort to, if you want, a nuclear program, uh, a nuclear deterrent. They've lost the arms race. They've been outlapped in that arms race, and they're completely incapable in conventional terms of actually defending themselves, let alone talk about any invasion of the South. The two big problems in North Korea in terms of shortages are two things. Energy, that's one reason for the civil nuclear program, which is why the North Koreans are, uh, are very interested in the language of the Biden administration about whether they're talking about the end of a, a nuclear, uh, nuclear developments on the peninsula or in North Korea. Because if it's on the peninsula, that allows a civil nuclear, a civil nuclear program. The second problem is manpower. Uh, literally, it is manpower because it's people in the military. If you actually decrease the conscription time from 10 to nine years, you free 100,000 uh, workers in, into the system. Uh, it's a very old fashioned model of how the economy works, but it just just might be the case in North Korea, which is the world's last global reservoir of, of cheap, skilled labor. What they're looking for in the end actually is a, completely the reverse of uh, what we've been told. They're looking for one system, two countries. Uh, when I say one system, they're looking for a system that is much closer to that of the state-owned enterprises, the Zaibatsu and the Chebol, rather than American style, if you want, dog-eat-dog uh, uh, -dog capitalism. But it's not so dissimilar from that in the South. Once you've got the final victory of 
two countries, one system, then you can talk about serious reunification. But that's not going to be by 2045. It's likely to be far later than that. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Glenn. A question I'd like to throw to all of you is, why does it matter what Kim Jong-un and the North Korean government wants as final victory? How does this or how should it shape the way that South Korea and other states react, uh, react to and relate to uh, North Korea? Uh, ben, if you could kick that off again, please. You know, all, it was interesting to hear everyone's points. And in terms of uh, something that I did want to bring up uh, in my introduction, short little speech there, is that there's a really interesting book by Thomas Schaefer, the former German ambassador to North Korea. And there's a section in the book where he talks about the reunification mindset of the North Korean government based on his time in Pyongyang and his time meeting with North Korean officials. In this book, he talks about how North Korean officials have this sense of superiority and the sense of legitimacy over the South Koreans. And the primary reason for that is nuclear weapons. They have for the past 70 years have forsaken economic development for military uh, self-defense purposes. Uh, North Korean people have for a very long period of time done away with this uh, kind of this economic prosperity. It's something that they're actually relatively comfortable with. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because there is this radical vision of a future in which the two Koreas are unified and Korea is finally sovereign. The only way that North Korea can, can actually overcome its security lapses is chronic future food shortages, it's chronic electricity issues, it was with reunification with South Korea. And as Josh talked about, you know, I don't envision that North Korea in the, in the next 5, 10, even 20 years is going to march into Seoul with their tanks and overtake the Blue House. This is going to be something that's very different. This won't even look anything like the Taliban-led insurgency. This is something that will be very slow, very kind of the withering away of uh, truth and uh, not truth in the South Korean cultural landscape. So I think one of the uh, kind of the divides I see here is that I'm thinking about this in terms of ideological terms, not in terms of economic terms, because in economic terms, in many regards, I agree with Glenn that North Korea, I mean, they are obviously much poorer than South Korea. Obviously, they would have major issues if they were ever to actually cross over the 38th parallel with fuel shortages, with uh, the lack of nourishment for their uh, forces. But this is this kind of this final victory is something that will uh, almost look kind of a Hong Kong-esque in terms of how the PRC is treating its kind of inner colonies. I think in many regards that uh, we would see something more similar to the PRC's kind of inner colonialism than what we're seeing with the Taliban in Afghanistan. So hopefully this will get this jump started as well. Okay, uh, Jean, do you wanna to respond to that? Yes, I would pick up on uh, what Ben was saying about um, North Koreans having the sense of superiority because of uh, their uh, military power and their uh, nuclear uh, uh, capability. Yes, this is true that North, uh, not, not only North Korean uh, officials, 
but also if, if you talk to uh, North Korean defectors or uh, resettlers or um, whatever you would like to uh, term you would like to use, uh, if you talk to the uh, North Korean people in South Korea who have uh, people who have uh, resettled in South Korea, uh, those ordinary people will also comment, have comments on, uh, in, in that sense of North Korea having that kind of military superiority, even though uh, despite their uh, economic um, dysfun dysfunction or mismanagement. So this is true. But it's also true that uh, over the seven, uh, last seven years, uh, historically, this sense of uh, superiority and uh, and the sense that they've carried over the years that they are somehow uh, more legitimate than South Korea in terms of uh, anti-Japanese nationalism and, um, and military capability has never translated to actual, superior, actual superiority in the sense of um, economic capability or, uh, or cultural strength or diplomatic uh, consolidation. So, when the question about uh, re revisiting the question about why does uh, what Kim Jong Un say matter, and how should uh, how sh how should it shape uh, the outlook of other countries in making sense of North Korean policy? I I can't speak for uh, the governments of other countries, but in terms of what South Korea, what the South Korean government tries to do with the, the parlance of Kim Jong Un, and by focusing on uh, the the changes that um, that you, we see we observe in the parlance, official parlance of and discourse of North Korea, is that again um, unification is also has always been in the discourse and parlance and policy of North Korea, but it has to be matched with and contextualized within the context of other principles uh, that will prevail in response to the prevailing circumstances of uh, the Kim Jong-un regime, Kim Jong-il regime and Kim Il-sung regime. So in the case of Kim Jong-un at this point, the South Korean government will pay very close attention to why North Korea has been uh, so much focused on emphasizing uh, the principle of our state first and how this is connected or what, what the implications of the, our, what the implications of our state first policy is or principle is for unification. And once again, I would say that uh, it really signals uh, their intent to focus on uh, consolidating and developing their own and, uh, and strengthening uh, and reinforcing and making more effective and, uh, and advancing the cause of in our style socialism and uh, building the powerful and prosperous socialist nation rather than communizing the entire Korean peninsula, which uh, is something that they might have been an ideological ideal uh, for them for generations, but they've had to uh, adjust their expectations based on the existence or non-existence or how much of a following they can gather uh, based on the appeal of their um, political system and economic model uh, in South Korea. And obviously uh, the, the appeal for the North Korean model has dramatically declined uh, over uh, the last, progressively over the last um, decades. And particularly since uh, the, uh, the famine and the food crisis of the mid 1990s. Let me pick up on that point that you said there, Gina, and, and turn to Joshua, because Joshua, you, in your opening statement, pointed to some figures of the uh, the old 1980s, uh, Jusapa, the uh, the pro-Juche group there, uh, 
Im Jong-guk and Im Su-kyung, who I, I must point out hasn't been a member of the National Assembly for the last five years. She did actually finish her term in 2016. But nevertheless, uh, you see a growing interest, Joshua, in, in support for North Korea within South Korea. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, look, I don't know if I would say it's growing. I would say it's very persistent. There is a generation of people uh, for whom it's forever 1980 left, and there is a generation for whom it's forever 1952 on the right. And that is the line along which South Korean society I don't know if this is still unreconstructed national liberation exactly the way it was in the 1980s and 90s, or if this is now just a merely a democratic ambivalence or a very odd sort of a uh, democratic people's republic definition of democracy or a people's republic definition of democracy, uh, or if it's merely anti-anti-North Korea. Uh, I think the uh, analogy of Spain in the 1930s may be a good one. My favorite working theory is that Moon Jae-in is a little bit like Juan Negrin trying to keep the nationalists and the Stalinists and the liberals and the democratic socialists and anarchists all under one roof and, and trying to manage that in, you know, with his own little fractious coalition. But nonetheless, there is a profound evidence about North Korea and and a, and a really alarming lack of alarm in South Korean society. North Korea is not just sitting there defensive. It is carrying out attacks against South Korean warships and shelling South Korean fishing villages. It's infiltrating South Korea. It's Im- intimidating defectors. It's planting landmines. It's sending shells over the DMZ. It demands the right to control what people say and print in South Korea. And South Koreans are not alarmed, I suspect, because nationalism is a palliative, because we're still in the backlash to the excesses of the old Korean right wing, which saw uh, communism in all democratic advocacy back during the days of the dictatorship. But the fact is the backlash has gone too far, and it has closed the eyes of South Koreans to another danger to democracy from the opposite direction. Then do you see uh, that North Korea forms a, a credible threat to South Korean democracy? I mean, in, in the sense of, from a military point of view, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no way at all. Uh, well, what about the, uh, the things that Joshua, um, you know, the incidents that Joshua outlined, uh, the, you know, sort of small scale uh, skirmishes, not of the kind of, you know, army against army, but the kind that can be used as leverage or to strong arm uh, a society that, that, that seeks to avoid a war? I, I mean, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not supportive of what the North Koreans do in any way whatsoever, but they're really, in, in global terms, really minor irritants. I, mean, they're, they're not, I don't see how South Korea sees that as a, a real threat to its existence. In a sense, it's probably more a reflection of the fact that Kim Jong-un needs to do something for his domestic, domestic audience. I mean, the question was originally, does mm. it matter what Kim Jong-un says? That was originally my question, it, yes. Yeah, I don't think it does matter what Kim Jong-un says. What it matters is what Kim Jong-un does. I mean, if you listen to what Washington says, Washington talks about democracy, human rights, women's rights, and yet it supports MBS in Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, it's complete hypocrisy. Right? So why does it matter what, uh, the, what Kim Jong-un says? What he does is the cr- crucial thing, and I think the point about uh, you know it's the economy first. 
and that's clearly what's happening and it fits in with my analysis in, in the sense that no they're not interested in unification what they're interested in is getting their economy going to be in a position that then they i mean if, if you start having a successful economy then you can actually actually do things i think there is a sense of faith in north korea I mean, the one way that someone in an inferior position can actually, if you want, justify a, a, almost a superior standpoint is, is through faith. Uh, and there is, at least in some parts of North Korea, a faith in the system. I think it's a misguided faith, but that's a different issue. As, as a practicing atheist, I think a lot of faiths are misguided, but uh, that, that's, that's other people's choices. I'm going to go back to Joshua, who had his hand up a moment ago. Joshua, you wanted to add something? Yeah, uh, first, um, I don't, I'm in the United States and I don't support MBS and I don't speak for MBS. So that's certainly not a position that's being argued here. Second, uh, I would just make the point here that what North Korea wants, not what North Korea says, and maybe not even what North Korea does, is what controls our cost benefit calculation. We decide what our policy should be. If North Korea, in fact, just wants to have of the consolidation and control of power within its own country, then yes, coexistence would be a plausible or, or containment would be a plausible uh, path to pursue. But North Korea's behavior suggests and North Korea's ideology and its statements quite clearly say that that's not what it's interested in. And if in fact North Korea has ambitions to dominate all of Korea, that completely upends our policy calculation of the risks and the benefits of one policy versus another. Um, okay, thank you, Joshua. Jean, you've got your hand up. Um, I just wanted to uh, add um, that there seems to be uh, somewhat, somewhat of, of an overestimation of how intimidating North Korea is and underestimation of how strong anti-communism is uh, in the, in the minds of the majority of uh, South Korean of the South Korean people. Now, the people that um, Joshua mentioned, um, political figures like Im Jong Sok, uh, Yin Young, and um, Im Su Kyung, these are these are fairly well known uh, figures in the student movement of the 1990s. But uh, the public support for these figures in the overall sense is very minimal and their political uh, impact is also should not be uh, overestimated either not because they are they are ineffective uh, they're actually they're very effective as a, a, a political um group, but because of the history of uh, anti-communism in South Korea and how, how it has been reinforced over the years because of um, not only just the Korean War to begin with, but um, those uh, small-scale skirmishes that uh, Joshua mentioned. Also, uh, they have the impact of strengthening the resolve of uh, the ordinary South Koreans to uh, support and strengthen anti-communism. So I, I, I just wanted to make that point about you know, okay. the strength of anti-communism in South Korea, both as a political and an ideological outlook of the majority of the South Korean people. Okay, thank you. Uh, ben, you've got your hand up. No, I, I don't, I'm not sure that we're really debating communism versus anti-communism. I think what we're trying to get at is the ethnic kinship between Koreans, the sense of minjok, 
is something that goes beyond communist or anti-communism. As we've known, since the collapse of the Soviet bloc in the early 1990s, North Korea's system has really been oriented towards nationalism. You don't see references really to Marxism-Leninism much anymore in the Rodan Shinmun. North Korea has this kind of very vitriolic, uh, some would say racist rhetoric. For example, they call Barack Obama a, a very horrible racial epithet. They've called the South Korean president, Park Geun-hye, very kind of just ridiculous epithets as well. It is a country that is no longer really subscribing to stodgy Stalinist ideology. It is something that has really clung on to this sense of ethnic solidarity with their Korean compatriots. So yes, the sense of anti-communism in South Korea is still very strong. Like, but I don't, I don't think that's really what I think Josh and I are trying to get at here. It's this really kind of this sense of ethnic nationalism, this sense of minjok that mm-hmm. binds the two Koreas. I mean, if watch the movie Escape from Mogadishu, it's a South Korean film. In the film, it is, takes place in Somalia during the Civil War. It's kind of the South Korean version of Black Hawk Down. And in this film, the, there is a civil war, South and North Korean diplomats, they're in this chaos. Uh, the South Koreans are helping the North Koreans escape. One of the North Koreans are offered the opportunity to defect to South Korea. None of them take that opportunity. And in this movie, they are celebrated as heroes, as being kind of, they, they never abandoned their country. And to me, I think that kind of speaks volumes in the sense of this kind of worldview of ethnic solidarity, is that you, uh, above all else, you are Korean. I want to um, pick up a little bit from that theme of uh, the, the ethnic minjok and also uh, the faith that uh, that Glenn mentioned that North Koreans have in their system and put forward uh, an analogy that that seems to speak to me uh, and I put this out there for you uh, to, for your consideration is the expression of final victory and unification of the fatherland a kind of a, a wish that everybody has to express publicly uh, you know in North Korea and in South Korea unification is something that nobody can publicly speak against. But even though at the same time, both states know that they cannot achieve unification right now by their own ends. And the analogy that I'm thinking of is it's a bit like uh, Christians longing for the return of Jesus in their lifetime, that it's something that they pray for and talk about on a day-to-day basis, but something that they cannot make happen, or Jews wanting to build a third temple. Is that a a possible analogy there? Uh, And I see Joshua's got his hand up, so you can uh, respond to that or, or talk about something else if you wish. I'd like to respond to that. Why, why if, if North Korea is only interested in its own internal development, did it blockade itself? Why, if North Korea is only interested in consolidating its own system, does it continue to carry out nuclear tests that intimidate South Korea, but also bring down sanctions on itself? Uh, this hypothesis just doesn't fit the evidence and the behavior of North Korea we see. You know, I wish South Koreans would pay more attention to what North Korea's ideology is. I join with the left in this regard in that the national security law is draconian and outdated and should be dramatically narrowed to decriminalize nonviolent speech. And I want that because I want the South to about Kim Il-sung's plans and how much continuity there is between the plans 
He laid out in 1956 and the plans that we still hear Kim Jong-un talking about today and the consistency between those plans and the things that, that North Korea continues to do to this very day that go well beyond its own borders. Uh, I, it, it just doesn't fit with a system that's trying to build its economy or consolidate itself that in fact it isolates itself. It wants to keep its people poor and ignorant and isolated so that they're easier to control while it pursues its external plans. Okay, uh, thank you. Jean. I would like to uh, take up an issue with uh, well, two, two uh, issues that uh, have been discussed so far. Uh, first of all, uh, Ben um, mentioned uh, the ethnic solidarity that was portrayed in the movie Move at Issue. Now, this film, of course, is a South Korean film and does not really reflect what has been the recent trend in or the recent changes in North Korean um, official discourse and parlance uh, in North Korea regarding unification. Um, once again, I would like to um, emphasize that this reference and emphasis on this, uh, ethnic solidarity was something that uh, carried through uh, very, very strongly and evidently until the um, until the time that Kim Jong-il was in power. But now in the Kim Jong-un era, uh, again, uh, there has been a real effort on, their on the part of the North Koreans to create and emphasize a separate state identity and with their uh, slogan of our state first ideology. So this, again, is really their version, again, of an economy first unification leader strategy, somewhat reminiscent of uh, President Park Jong-hee. Um, in terms of nuclear tests and North Korea's nuclear development, I would say that um, North Korea, I, 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 I'm not trying to suggest that it is, we don't need, uh, it's, we don't need a case for alarm or that uh, we don't need to worry about it, but really North Korea's nuclear interest in North Korea's, uh, the North Korean interest in the nuclear program and their military self-reliance has a very long history that goes beyond the end of the Cold War. And their interest in military self-reliance in general and nuclear self-reliance in particular is more a function of their uh, diplomatic isolation and their their um, inferiority rather than their uh, actual capability to threaten their real and perceived enemies. One last point. So yes, North Korea has constantly referred to unification and their uh, ultimate goal of communizing the entire peninsula. But uh, we need to think about whether this is really realistic and whether it can be supported by its allies, uh, more specifically China. And China, uh, as we know, has been very cautious about a direct confrontation on the Korean Peninsula, on the matter of, of the uh, Korean Peninsula. So uh, since the Korean War, they have been very careful to avoid a direct confrontation with the United States on on any any matter and uh, and I, I would think that the Korean Peninsula would not be an exception so North Korea regardless of its rhetoric and slogan uh, however revolutionary or radical it is um, there are circumstances and factors that need to be counted uh, that need to be factored in uh, in understanding how real, the North Korean um, threat or uh, the intent is to communize the entire Korean Peninsula. Okay, Glenn? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Let me say that I wasn't suggesting that Josh 
Joshua was, was supporting MBS. I was making the point about the hypocrisy of, of governments and, and believing what governments actually say and that they actually mean it. And that applies just as much to North Korea as anywhere else. So let me, let me, let me make that point. I was interested in the comparison with Spain because I actually see the Spanish comparison and I actually mentioned it in, in, in my book more back in with the Korean Civil War than, than, than now. And I think there are very, very many clear comparisons back in 1950 with what was happening in Spain in, in, 90, in 1936. But the, the point I wanted to make was that the North Korean regime of Kim Jong-un sees two threats to the system, two threats to, to himself. One is external. And I've made the point about they're outspent by a factor of 50 by their enemies in quotation marks, which is why they, they've been forced to go nuclear. And secondly, internal, which is why he wants to grow the economy. Now, in many countries, you could do both, but you can't in North Korea because developing nuclear weapons, unlike in India or Pakistan or Israel, leads to sanctions. But not so in that sense, you, you can't do both. And that's the dilemma that actually faces Kim Jong-un. He can have he can have external security or internal security and try to do both at the same time is it's extremely is extremely difficult so that's a problem in terms of uh, if you are ethnic solidarity i think that's that is that is the different issue and i guess unlike german unification uh, i think some of the issues around german ethnic solidarity might be interesting to explore. Everybody wants to wants to tell the North Koreans that the way forward is to follow the German example, which they clearly don't want to because it was very clearly assimilation. But there may be some interesting issues there. But I mean, the escape from Mogadishu, I mean, this is a trope that comes up again and again and again in South Korean films. I mean, Berlin Liaison was a, a similar one where where North Koreans and South Koreans helped each other against, you know, against evil and, and the rest. So, I mean, it's not new. Uh, but the last point I'd make is when we talk about forced unification, this is the, this is the North Korean dog catching the South Korean car. I mean, it's the last thing they want to happen if they actually, if by some miracle, it will be completely disastrous. It would. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, analogy there. Uh, yeah, the the old joke for those who haven't heard it of, uh, about the uh, the dog who chased after a car and then then didn't know what to do with it once he caught it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, in the ten minutes remaining to us, I want to ask a very important question here, which is a practical one to all of you. Um, is there a way to test or falsify uh, the paradigm through which you see uh, North Korea's understanding of final victory? In other words, what what signs or actions from North Korea should we expect to see uh, now or in the short to midterm future uh, if it does actually aim to um, absorb or, or take control of or strong arm South Korea into a, uh, uh, into a captive position? Uh, Joshua, you can start off. Yeah, uh, look, I laid it all out in writing. It's there for anyone to read. And I laid it out there again five years ago. And I'm, unfortunately, it's been coming true. We expect North Korea to make demands about what people can say in South Korea, what the newspapers can print in South Korea. And we should really get concerned when South Korea begins to comply. We have seen that happen. Uh, we will see more pressure for joint statements by North Korea that will continue to consolidate North Korea's right to control so-called slander of its system, the sort of thing that 
by the way, South Korean presidents of both parties, including Park Geun-hye and No Tae-yoo have agreed to this. Uh, we're going to continue to see North Korea demanding that South Korea break sanctions to set up enterprises like Kaesung and Kumgan, which will be a big enough hole in the sanctions to essentially secure North Korea's place as a consolidated nuclear power uh, to continue to stop exercises so that the U.S.-Korea alliance continues to degrade, to expect South Korea to continue to chart a neutralist course that will put it increasingly at odds with Washington on the whole question of the alliance, which I believe to be in much greater danger than a lot of people admit. We're going to see a continued drifting apart of the United States and Korea politically, and we're going to see continued democratic decay in South Korea with more people being prosecuted for criminal libel and fake news. Uh, Joshua, I just wondered, the uh, destruction of the uh, North-South Korean liaison office by North Korea, was it already two summers ago? It feels like it was already two summers ago when they blew that thing up. How does that fit into your uh, understanding of, of North Korea's pursuit of final victory? South Korea's current government is so beholden to the idea of gambling everything, all of its political support, its, all, its whole agenda on the improvement of North-South relations, that North Korea can blow up one of its own buildings and have the, the blast wave really felt in an, in an entirely different country. North Korea didn't need that building, and it has other buildings where it can convene a meeting of the Democratic uh, Federal Republic of Korea somewhere else if necessary, maybe in Kaesong. Maybe South Korea will build another one, maybe in Pyongyang, as far as I know. So look, that is, again, an intimidation tactic that seems to have been successful. Uh, we saw a whole series of political concessions by South Korea's uh, so-called Democratic Party in the National Assembly after that. It works. Okay. All right. Thank you. Gene, um, if you can uh, tell us what activities you would expect to see from North Korea now or in the near, near term future that would uh, show that it does, in fact, seek to uh, maintain some control over South Korea. Well, I think that North Korea will continue to criticize the South Korean government for uh, lacking independence and not being able to manage inter-Korean relations on its own terms and being reliant on the United States and you know, not being able to make uh, an independent decision on, uh, on, on, on how to manage inter-Korean relations and the question of sanctions and what can be done between the two Koreas uh, despite uh, international sanctions and so forth. But as North Korea continues to make this criticism, uh, to raise this criticism about the lack of uh, or the inability of South Korea to uh, act independently and manage inter-Korean relations independently, whether it will actually resonate, uh, that criticism of South Korea being uh, lacking independence will actually resonate and have an impact, political impact in South Korea, I think is, I, I would say, uh, doesn't really have much North Korean criticism. North Korea's criticism of the South Korean government really does not have that much of an impact politically within South Korea. So North Korea can, will continue to, to behave in the, in the similar manner that it has uh, where South Korea is concerned. But really, that the, the issue of how much critical North Korea is of South Korea isn't really a big political issue 
within South Korea. Mm. And even if there were, you know, a few people, a renowned, rather um, renowned people in, in politics, figures in politics uh, who are considered pro-North uh, Korea or pro-communist, uh, those people, the existence of those people, those kinds of people, those kinds of voices or views are, I, I would say, very minimal in South Korea and not very much powerful in uh, South Korea. So the idea that North Korea is uh, uh, trying to achieve uh, and pursue final victory is really justification for the government and the party and the military to reinforce uh, its domestic legitimacy, despite the manifest dysfunction, ineffectiveness, and mismanagement of uh, their system. And it's really more and more increasingly becoming North Korea's domestic issue rather than something that South Korea, uh, rather than something that has uh, an impact in South Korean politics or South Korean policy. Okay. Uh, Ben? Yeah. So, you know, I I think that this idea of a final victory, it's a long-term vision, very much part of North Korea's kind of utopian forward-oriented mindset. North Korea has always had this kind of utopian worldview that one day they're going to reunify and have this truly independent country where all Koreans can live and thrive together. So this is not a three, five, 10, 20 year plan here. This is something that is long term. It's important to note that Kim Jong-un is still a very young man. Uh, He recently lost a bunch of weight. Who knows if he actually took his doctor's advice to get on a treadmill or not, but it seems like he's going to be around for a while. And so what we have also seen is that North Korea, even during periods of famine and hardship, is very stable. Uh, During the COVID-19 pandemic, the country has really isolated itself down and closed its borders. This is not a country that is on the brink of collapse. Uh, But I think that there are some telltale signs that things could really rapidly change on the Korean peninsula. And one of the first kind of signs is that is if the U.S. was ever to withdraw its military presence from Korea. I think there's a very real possibility of that within the next five to 10 years, depending on who wins uh, in 2024, 2028. I think there's a very real possibility that Trump runs again in 2024, and he has been very ambivalent about a continued U.S. military presence in South Korea. It's also, I think, could be interesting to see if there's more North Korean agents slash spies being captured in South Korea. I recently uh, learned that there was a re-defector who crossed over into North Korea, I think, just this week. He was a a gymnast. Uh, He was a North Korean who defected to South Korea. Now he re-defected back to North Korea. It'll be, I think, if there is more and more of those cases, I think that is something to explore in terms of North Korean kind of clandestine influence in South Korea. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if there's more abductions, kind of kind of more, more low-level kind of uh, spy activities in South Korea. Because, um, you know, every once in a while, I look at Yonhap News and I see, oh, they, there was four North Korean uh, spies that were arrested. So this is, it seems very Cold War as something that from a novel, but there are still North Korean spies in South Korea. And I think if, if something was to kind of happen in the neck, in the short term, that could be kind of a, a sign of some bigger rumblings to come is, is if there is more and more spies slash agents slash abductions going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And Glenn? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 
that the fact that North Korea wants to try to influence what happens in South Korea seems to me completely unexceptional. As, as two neighboring countries, uh, what would what else would one expect, particularly with the if you if you want with the joint uh, ethnicity? Uh, East Germany and West Germany were in in very similar positions, and the idea that the East Germans were not trying to influence what, what went on in the the West was is clearly nonsensical. And you have a whole series of issues there, which I which I won't go into. The question is whether that kind of interaction is getting to the point where it's threatening to South to South Korea's very existence, and that seems to me that that's what we're debating here. And if I was looking for a sign that the North Koreans are actually <laughs> genuinely thinking they can do that, it would be in a genuine North Korean interest in early unification. That would seem to me that they're not going the economic model. Leave us alone. Let us grow our economy for 25 years. Then we're in the same league and we can do something. If the South Korea, if the North Koreans in, in 18 months time start talking about early unification, I really start worrying because that seems to me that they think that they're not going to win economically. They're going to win ideologically or military. Lynn, you had uh, countless meetings with um, high ranking North Korean Workers' Party officials over the years. Uh, did they ever say to you, you know, things that made you feel like they were interested in, in early uh, and quick unification with South Korea? Or did they say things no, that gave you the opposite idea? No, absolutely. The, the opposite. I mean, the, the, the higher you go in, in, in North Korea, the less you have talk about uh, unification, early unification at least. Nobody disavows the, the idea that at some point in time, yeah. but certainly people like Riso Young, who I, uh, I spoke to, who was head of the International Department of the Party and was one of the four people in the room with Trump, he was the one who said, absolutely not. Early unification is assimilation. Get off our backs. Let us grow our economy. Then we talk unification in a generation's time. Okay. Uh, final thoughts from everybody in 30 seconds or fewer. Joshua. I really want to stress the point that Benjamin stressed, which is nationalism. Uh, I came home from South Korea feeling very pessimistic, and I remain very pessimistic about the future of South Korea because its extreme nationalism palliates it to the inhumanity and the danger of the North Korean system. But to some extent, the uh, anti-communism that Professor Doe refers to was also a palliative. Censorship is a palliative. Uh, South Koreans probably know less about North Korea's ideology and human rights abuses than many other OECD countries. And that's very dangerous to their society. The tropes that we refer to in these South Korean films about North Korea and South Korea really not being all that different, those tropes come up because, uh, for reasons, they come up because filmmakers want to make them and because audiences eat them up and accept. Anti-communism in South Korea is a reactionary force that offers no vision, has had almost no influence in the last election. We are in a very dangerous place with the formation of these fake news boards and with the, the censorship of free thought and free speech in South Korea, in which we are headed to something that is neither a democracy nor a totalitarian state, but something like South North Korea. Mm. And that is not a good direction, uh, as the people of Hong Kong learned, and as I hope the people of South Korea will realize while there is still time. 
Okay. That was a little bit longer than 30 seconds. So to be fair, Jean, you can take equal time for your closing statement. So when we regard uh, things that Kim Jong-un is doing, obviously there are things that um, are very similar to what his predecessors have done and others that uh, he's trying for the first time or something that uh, we, we can observe uh, elements of novelty. So the achievement of final victory um, and, and the references to final victory being made in uh, across three generations of hereditary succession is, is not new. Again, uh, Kim Jong-un um, is this, for, for Kim Jong-un, the achievement of final victory or the appearance of pursuing final victory is necessary as a way to uh, legitimize uh, his political control, which is based on the idea uh, that he succeeds without inter interruption, the legacy and objectives of his predecessors. Um, but at the same time, uh, again, I will stress once again that um, there is variance as to uh, how much of a priority nationalism, unification, and socialism is in, in uh, the uh, discourse, uh, official discourse of North Korea. And um, in the past, uh, before Kim Jong-un came to power, uh, until the time of uh, until the Kim Jong-il era, uh, there used to be much emphasis being laid on nationalism and Joseon Minjok and ethnic solidarity and so forth. But in the Kim Jong-un era, uh, North Korea has been um, laying increasing emphasis on uh, our state first, and this uh, effectively has the impact of uh, delaying or putting the uh, the objective of unification on the sh uh, shelf uh, for the moment mm. for the more immediate goal and priority of uh, consolidating uh, their powerful and prosperous socialist um, nation. Okay, yes. that, that's a good yeah. place to end there. Thank you. Uh, ben, uh, you can uh, respond and give your final statement. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, North Korea's final victory strategy is not an economic vision. This is a country for the past 70 years that has never prioritized economic development. You can see it in their fact that they have prioritized nuclear development. They spent 20 to 30% of their GDP at times uh, focused on military self-defense. If they actually cared about economic development, then they would actually uh, work towards that, become a part of the international community. Final victory is a radical vision of national liberation. That is what it is. It is a ideological program. Uh, and I think there needs to be more in-depth research and analysis of the right-left divide in South Korea, because the right and left in South Korea is not the same as the right and the left in the Western world. The left in South Korea is very nationalistic. During the 1980s, there was quite a bit of fervent pro uh, Kim Il-sung rhetoric amongst the left. They used that to kind of overturn the military regime of South Korea, which was oppressive. But there's always been an element of this kind of pro-Juche, pro-DPRK ideology amongst the left in South Korea. And I think that we need to get kind of rid of our Western notions of what is left, what is right when it comes to Korean affairs. Okay, thanks, Ben. And uh, Glenn? Yeah, I don't really think I've got an enormous amount to add. Mm. Although I would, I would disagree with Benjamin about the fact that the North Korea has never prioritized the economy. Uh, it seems to me, at least in the period 1953 to 68, 
before the small civil civil war uh, or the uh, attempted uh, insurrections in the South. I mean, there was plenty of evidence that the North was prioritizing uh, the economy. But more recently, yes, you're, I, I, I would agree. But it seems to me that the, if there is a threat to the South, it's going to come more from nationalism rather than communism. So uh, it would seem to me that the, the more the North gives up the, uh, if you're communist rhetoric and moves towards nationalist rhetoric, the more it is of a threat, because if anything's going to glue uh, the, the Korean peoples together, it's going to be nationalism rather than, rather than any other form of ideology. Okay, thanks very much there, Glenn. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time for today, so we'll have to leave it there inevitably without a consensus or a conclusion, but it's still a very interesting a discussion to have and one that we will revisit occasionally here on the NK News podcast about what final victory means to North Korea. Thank you once again for coming on the NK News show today, Gene, Glenn, Ben and Joshua. Thank you for having me. Thank you you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, don't forget to take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please email us at podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. (laughs) 